Hi, this is Jake Turner for the Turning Points Podcast. This is where you're going to find the best guest, Charles Davis, analyst for Fox Sports and NFL Network. He's Arifa Sun, uh, AAF writer and Vikings writer for The Athletic, and takes you won't find anywhere else. You're not buying into the uh, Kevin Durant, Patrick Beverly feud? No. I think that's a joke. I think that's about as big of a joke as when Richard Karn hosted Family Feud for that year. Find this podcast and subscribe to it to iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. It's time to get to both sides of the story. With the NFL draft just a few days away, I thought I would try something different here on Turning Points, where we tell both sides the story. I'm Jake Turner. Tweet me at, at JakeTurnerSport. And this is just part one of our five-part series for the NFL draft. We're going to have Rudy Reyes to uh, break down the Steelers draft. We got Zach Pearson for the Bears. But I had to start off with this guy. You can follow him at, at Sports on Twitter. He is the founder, the creator of the Pack-A-Day podcast. You can tweet him at, at Pack-A-Day podcast. He's Andy Herman of Cheesehead TV. And uh, first off, Andy, thank you so much for joining us here on Turning Points. Uh, first off, I got to know, how many people applied for this? Uh, applied for uh, the Pack-A-Day podcast or Turning Points? Uh, <laughs> I haven't got that far yet. Uh, <laughs> no, for the Pack-A-Day podcast. Gotcha. Yeah. So uh, for the Pack a Day podcast, we had uh, originally it was around 200 applicants that originally applied uh, when I first reached out about a year ago, and then uh, we've definitely had people that have continuously kind of asked about it. Um, we've added people along the way as well. So uh, definitely, uh, like I said, around 200 at the initial onset, and then there's there's probably been uh, around at least 50 to 100 more probably since that time. So there's there's definitely been a, a lot of requests that have come in for it. That is incredible. And then uh, your recent one, you pulled off a draft one. You said it was the highest uh, ratings yet. How many clicks were on there? Well, it's always uh, tough to tell because we posted on Cheesehead TV as well. But mm -hmm. uh, we had over 3,000 listeners uh, for the, the Mock Draft podcast. I think we're in the, about 3,200 right now. Um, but that's just uh, clicks from uh, from the actual podcast itself, uh, from Buzzsprout and anywhere that it kind of goes from there. But we posted to Cheesehead TV, and we have a few different ways that people can access it. So we never have a fully accurate count, uh, but it, it was at, at minimum around 3,200. Andy Herman of Cheesehead TV joining us here on Turning Points. You can follow him at, at Sconey Sports, so you can find it on the Pack-A-Day podcast Twitter page. Uh, let's talk about the Packers draft coming up in a few days here. If you were Brian Gutekust, who would you pick with pick number 12? Oh, that's a loaded question. I mean, I guess the first thing I'd say is it really depends upon who's uh, sitting there available at 12. You know, I'm obviously a huge Ed Oliver guy. I think if he gets there uh, to pick 12, I think he's just an absolute no-brainer. It kind of means that the league kind of overthought things just a little bit. Um, you know, Jonah Williams is a guy I like a lot. Uh, maybe I should preface this by saying when, when I'm picking at pick 12, I want a couple things. Uh, the first thing is you ideally want a premium player at a premium position. And, and what I mean by that is I want a, a tackle. I want a quarterback. I want a corner. I want a pass rusher, somebody who's going to affect the, the main course of the game. Now, uh, of course, quarterback's not in play here. There's just not one that would be good enough for the Green Bay Packers to take. Obviously, they've got Rodgers. So that's out of the question here um, so that really brings you to to uh, you know offensive tackle pass rusher or corner uh, corner is kind of out of the question as well in most likelihood I guess you know greedy Williams someone like that would 
really be an outside shot, maybe more if they traded down. But there's really not a, a top corner in this draft either. And you can kind of say the same thing about wide receiver. Maybe you could go DK Metcalf, but that seems awfully rich at 12. So that leaves two premium positions left, which would either be offensive tackle or edge rusher or, or pass rusher. Um, I don't really necessarily care where the pass rush is coming from, whether it's defensive tackle or whether it's edge rusher. So if a Quinn and Williams or an Ed Oliver are there, which again, it, it doesn't seem like they're going to be obviously, but uh, those would certainly be options. Edge rusher, whether it's a Brian Burns, a Montez Sweat, pending the heart issue, that's always a, a difficult thing to work through and, and know exactly what's going on there. Um, but you could certainly go in one of those directions, a Cleland Farrell. Um, you know, you you know, those would all potential be options. And then that offensive line, you know, whether it's a, a Jonah Williams and Andre Dillard, uh, Dillard's a guy that I, I'm really, really high on. I think he could be a phenomenal pass blocking tackle for, for 10 plus years in this league, uh, but he has less value uh, for green Bay than he kind of does anywhere else. Cause he's ideally a left tackle. You can't find pass blocking left tackles, uh, but that's one area where green Bay has no issue. David Bakhtiari is the best in the league, arguably at that. So, um, you know, it's a really interesting position for, Green Bay to be in, but uh, I've gone Montez Sweat. I've said that to numerous people. It's kind of been in my gut all along, but obviously this heart issue and, and him potentially falling out of the first round is is potentially throwing a wrench into those things. So I, I'm, I'm as intrigued as almost anyone, Jake, as to where Green Bay could go, and it's really going to be dependent upon who falls to them at 12. And I think that that's a great point because I feel like this is exciting. I want Packer fans to understand this. you you gotta you got to shut down the quarterback talk here. I mean, because the quarterback in this draft right now is weak, okay? And aside from Kyler Murray and Drew Locke, I really don't see anybody that makes me go, hey, he really bounces off the page here, especially when it comes to this, when the likes of Trevor Lawrence are going to be up. Tua Tango Vailoa is going to be there next year. And there's going to be a lot better talent out there, pro-ready guys. I mean, I just want that kind of quarterback thing to go away. I like what you're saying about Greedy Williams, though, I think that's also an interesting one. Montez Sweat, I saw his game film. Really liked what I saw out of that. But here is a name I keep hearing about, and I don't understand because I feel like this position is good to go. But tight end, TJ Hawkinson. Why would the Packers take a chance on that? Yeah, so Hawkinson's a really interesting player. Let me start by saying I love TJ Hawkinson. I mean, you watch okay. his film. It, this isn't a, a guy that jumps off the table. I mean, he flashes consistently. He is such an easy player to grade. You, you know, I, I love getting into the minutia of some of these players like a Robert Tanyan and an Alex Light, these undrafted players who you're trying to find a diamond in the rough. But every once in a while, it's just fun to put, put on the tape and have a TJ Hawkinson come up where just everything is, is so incredibly easy. Mm -hmm. He's a natural hands catcher. He can get down the field. He's athletic. He's an old school tight end in a new school uh, frame, if you will. He's got all the athletic traits that you would want. He compares very favorably to George Kittle, who also played at Iowa. I know that's kind of a lazy comparison because they both played there, but I think the... <laughs> The, well, I think the comparison really. is super appropriate. Um, you normally, when you put on tight end tape, you're not necessarily expecting guys to to take defensive linemen and and push them 15 yards down the field, and you're certainly not looking for it to be that way on a you know 
I don't want to say a consistent basis because it's not like he's doing it down in and down out, but you see it show up multiple times on tape where he's taking defensive linemen in college football, big college football, big 10 programs, and he's washing them, you know, 10, 15 yards downfield. That's the type of player that TJ Hawkinson is. And you take a look at what would be the ideal tight end in Matt LaFleur's offense, and you basically build TJ Hawkinson. So um, I think he's a perfect fit for the offense. The the question you have to really ask here is, does tight end have value at pick 12? Um, right. And, and I think Justin, Justice Mosqueda d- did a really great job of breaking this down and basically just said, ignore tight end round one. And that's generally my take as well. And, and mm-hmm. maybe not necessarily round one as a whole. You start picking 28 to, to 30 and you've got a great tight end on the board. By all means, take them. But 12 is really, really rich for a tight end. And it's okay if you hit. If you hit Travis Kelsey, Rob Gronkowski, uh, you know, George Kittle, would you trade the 12th pick in the draft for a player like that? Yeah, you probably would pretty much every day of the week. But you would better as heck hit because 12 for a tight end is very, very rich. And, oh, by the way, all the guys that I just mentioned, not picked in the first round. So uh, the, the, Mm -hmm. the story is you can find tight ends later in the draft. The story is that the guys that get picked in the first round of the draft generally don't turn out to be those marquee tight ends. And the ones that do usually take three, four years to develop taking Eric Ebron, the last tight end who was taken in the top 12 of the draft. He basically didn't do anything in Detroit. Once he got his second contract, which is a general trend for tight ends, that that's usually the point they start taking off. Once he got his second contract in Indy, you started to see his potential come out a little bit more. So 12 is rich for a tight end. Um, But if you're going to do it, TJ Hawkinson's not a bad guy to do it with. He's Andy Herman of uh, Cheesehead TV, bringing it uh, right now with TJ Hawkinson, joining us here on Turning Points, where we tell both sides of the story. I'm Jake Turner. I couldn't agree more, Andy. I think that you know if Hawkinson is there in the seventh, in the second round, or even the third round, I think the Packers would take a chance. You talk about Travis Kelsey, fifth round draft pick out of the University of Cincinnati, and now he's one of the top tight ends in the NFL. I always feel like the the tight end position, especially the last couple of years, you can find in a different way. I mean, you can find it in the later rounds. Because I always say to people that the later rounds are my favorite part of the NFL draft. Because I feel like that's when you start seeing the depth chart that is going to come to life here. Because if you don't have that depth going into this season, and and you got brand new you know, strength and conditioning coaches. So does that mean that the Packers' injuries are going to go down or if they're going to continue to skyrocket as they have underneath the previous? But now, with this point, I I got this for you. Give me a sleeper pick in rounds four through seven. At any position or at tight end? Any position. Any position that you would find in either round four through seven. It could be any round as well. Hmm, that's a really interesting question. So I'm going to go. I'm going to go a unique, unique player here. In fact, okay. I'm going to give you a couple, and they're going to be at the same position. And it's probably not a position that you're expecting. I'm going to go quarterback okay. here. There right. are two quarterbacks that I like in this draft that I think are going to go in that fourth to seventh round range, mm-hmm. um, and that is Brett Rippon and Easton Stick. Uh, let me start with Easton Stick. Mm-hmm. I think he has been undervalued because he plays at a lesser program. 
Uh, he had some things that were very easily set up for him in the offense that they run. It's primarily a running offense, um, and uh, he gets a lot of easy looks off of play action. Uh, but he has uh, definitely enough arm strength. His athleticism is off the charts. Uh, he he can make pretty much every throw that you need on the field. And I think if he's a couple inches taller and his arms maybe just a tad stronger, I'm not sure that you're not looking at this guy as a, a first round pick. So uh, I love Easton Stick. He he has a lot of traits that I really look to develop in a quarterback. And I think you pick him up in the fourth or seventh rounds. Uh, I think you've got a developmental quarterback that you can really, really, uh, you know, take and, uh, you know, take some time to develop. And maybe three, four years down the line, you've got something, uh, something special to work with. And then the other guy is Brett Rippon. So uh, Mark Rippon's nephew uh, played at Boise State. The thing I love about Brett is he played in a pro-style offense. And, of course, you've got all these quarterbacks coming from these spread systems. You've got them uh, you know, coming from a run and gun, whether it be an air raid offense. Uh, but you see very few traditional you know, West Coast-style offenses playing under center, uh, making a lot of play-action fakes back to the defense and then turning around and having to make quick reads. Uh, Brett Rippon has that in spades. He's played in the, under that type of system for an incredibly long time. Um, and uh, you, you see that he kind of was this, you know, quarterback protege for some time that he was kind of meant to play the position. You see him be a little bit mechanical at times, but it, it usually ends in a, in a net positive for him. And I just love his play action game. I think he puts the ball where it's needed. I've seen him make uh, some deep out throws that were really impressive. Um, I just, I think that he, both of these guys, I'm not betting against. And while other teams are taking some of these uh, Daniel Joneses and Dwayne Haskins and Drew Locks way too early in the draft, and I think they're probably going to end up being busts in the league, um, I think you could take some of these guys and develop them, and hopefully they turn into something a little bit down the line, and you've put a lot less draft stock into them, you know, picking them in, on day three of the draft. And I agree with you, Andy. I think that's a great point because you talk about Daniel Jones, and I understand, you know, David Cutcliffe is the coach there. He was the one that trained Peyton Manning. I totally understand that. But Dwayne Haskins is coming from a system where Ohio State quarterbacks, even under Jim Tressel, were never anything big. They never were. Todd Beckman, Troy Smith, JT Barrett, Braxton Miller, the list goes on and on and on. And I understand, yeah, 50 touchdowns, but... Did you not see the receivers? Did you not see the weaponry they had in the backfield? They made Dwayne Haskins that good. And, I mean, that's why he got to the Heisman Trophy presentation, but did not win. That was Kyle Murray. And another thing that you brought up that I really like is you brought up Easton Stick. Now, if they decide to go get somebody in the fourth through the seventh round as a quarterback, does that keep Rodgers from kind of losing his cool with Matt LaFleur? Uh, no, I don't think that, you know, that picking a quarterback in the fourth or seventh round is really going to have an effect on anything. And okay. I don't think it's even going to be a blip on Aaron Rodgers' radar. Right, I mean, a, right. a, a quarterback in the fourth or seventh round, um, you know, is brought in to compete with Tim Boyle and Deshaun Kaiser as the, the second and third quarterback. And I think that would be a very open competition. When you're taking a quarterback in the fourth and se fourth to seventh round, you're, you're just taking a lottery ticket. And you're hoping that, um, you know, maybe there's a, a couple traits that you saw on tape uh, that you can quickly develop. And all of a sudden, you know, like a, a like a Dak Prescott, who was, I think, taking third or fourth round, um, you know, all of a sudden you hit on something that, you know, you weren't necessarily expecting uh, to get out of it. You know, Russell Wilson, something similar. 
receiver. So when you're when you're taking a quarterback in that range, you're just hoping that something hits that you know you not everyone saw on tape and, uh, and something clicks early. But I don't think it's it's going to affect much else. It's going to affect Deshaun Kaiser and Tim Boyle uh, more than it's going to affect anything else on the roster. What is the riskiest draft pick for the Packers? Oh, I mean, taking a quarterback at 12 or 30 would be the riskiest just because there's there's no scenario where that is a good pick. And I, and I don't necessarily <laughs> say that if, if I loved one of these quarterbacks, um, I, I wouldn't. You know, if you have an opportunity to take a great quarterback, I don't care what your situation is. You always consider it, in my opinion, um, just because it's the. the the most important position in all of sports. Um, and if you have the opportunity to take a great one, go for it. Uh, you just better be right. Um, but what I'll say is I don't, I don't think a quarterback in this draft, whether it's a drew lock, whether it's a Daniel Jones, um, you know, I just don't, you know, Dwayne Haskins, same thing. I just don't think that they have, you know, what it takes to be a top tier quarterback in this league. And if you're taking one at this point in Rogers career, uh, it has to be the perfect scenario. So it would be a quarterback. Or th- then the other option would be an, an Ed Oliver at 12. Um, that would be a, a very risky play. The upside is tremendous. And you love the explosiveness. You love the traits. You just don't love the tape. And I've seen enough, you know, Big Ten. You know, Jarrell Worthy is a, a great example of, you know, Ooh, one of these Big Ten yes. uh, defensive linemen who has some of that upside. And it just doesn't necessarily work out the way that you were expecting. If I'm picking top 12, I want my cake and I want to eat it too. I want production. <laughs> I want traits. I want athleticism. I want a little bit of everything. And ideally, I would have it at a marquee position as well. Um, Ed Oliver has a lot of those things except the production. And uh, if I'm picking him there, I, I want higher production than what I saw out of Oliver. You know, I understand. Oh, sorry, out of uh, Gary, excuse me. Yeah, and I understand that because I hear that Rashad Gary and Ed Oliver continue to dominate here. But why is nobody talking about Cleveland Farrell, Andy? I've watched this kid's tape. I've watched the way that he interacts with Davo Sweeney and Brett Venables and the way that he is on the field. He's a leader. But there's just no hype about this guy. But I think it would be huge if the Packers got Cleveland Farrell if he dropped to 12. Yeah, so it's a great point. I actually really like Cleland Farrell, and I, I think he, you know, I'm going to say this. Okay. I, it would not shock me one bit if he was announced as the 12th pick to the Packers. Mm-hmm. I definitely think that that's in play. Um, I would not be shocked if they took him over Sweat because of the potential heart conditions and because of, uh, over Burns because of, uh, you know, Burns potentially not being a full three-down player like, like Farrell could be. I think the reason why he may go lower than 12 and why maybe some of that hype's not quite there, he doesn't have uh, the the bend around the corner that you would ideally like from a top-end pass rusher like a Brian Burns has. Um, so I think there's a, a little bit of question there. I think the, the next question that you're going to get is why was it that um, you know Clemson's defensive line as a whole – was so successful. You've got a lot of really talented guys on that line. You've got Lawrence in the middle. You've got Christian Wilkins. You've got Cleland Farrell. Um, you've got Bryant, who's going to go later in the draft. You've got a massively talented group. Who was really the guy that, that buttered the bread? Was it Lawrence that was kind of eating the blocks and setting it up for everyone else? Sometimes when you get those ultra-talented defensive lines, it's kind of one guy that's doing the yeoman's work and everyone else kind of gets to clean up after the fact. I think you see a little bit of that from Farrell where he's kind of getting uh, or reaping the benefits of, of some of that interior defensive line play where he can kind of clean up some of those sacks. 
And then the last thing I'll say is you always want to scout the player first. Don't scout the jersey. But Mm. there have been a lot of Clemson pass rushers over the course of the last decade taken in the first and second round that have not turned out. In fact, you can argue all of them have not turned out as expected. Uh, um, Vic Beasley, you know, was expected to be this dominant edge rusher. He's shown flashes, but he hasn't certainly lived up to a top 10 pick in this league. Uh, Kevin Dodd probably never should have been taken in the first couple rounds in the first place, but second round pick out of Clemson, he's out of the league already. Um, you know, you just have seen, you know, Daquan Bowers is another one. And I know there's about three right. or four more on that list. Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the Clemson edge rushers haven't exactly turned out and uh, you know, I I think it just kind of plants a little bit of a seed of doubt of, you know, is it the system? Um, is it the guys, you know, because they have so much depth and interior pressure that the, these guys can kind of clean up some of those sacks. But I will say, I, I do like his tape. I have a first-round grade on him. I think he's a really nice player. He's got a plethora of p- pass rush moves at his disposal. Um, he's, you know, he's tenacious. He's quick off the line of scrimmage. Um, and he can play all three downs. So you get a really good player. But I think some of those concerns I just mentioned is why you know maybe he's not being mentioned in those top 15 picks great point i understand on those concerns i think it was because i just love the way farrell's game film just like bounced off but i mean you brought up to Quan bowers i remember how incredible of an athlete that guy was he got drafted by the tampa bay buccaneers and then he just fell off a cliff he couldn't stay healthy he wasn't following the playbook and he was out of the nfl in three years or less Andy Herman at Cheesehead TV joining me on Turning Points. I'm Jake Turner. Tweet him at, at Sconey Sports or at Jake Turner Sport for me. Uh, so let's talk about the pick that nobody is talking about right now, Andy. Pick number 30. Where are the Packers going to go with this pick? Yeah, so 30 and 44 is, is really shaping up what I think will be um, either a pass, uh, you know, a, a pass receiving weapon, mm-hmm. um, either at receiver or at tight end. Um, okay. If they haven't gone, you know, tight end at 12, which I don't think they will, um, you know, potentially Noah Fant could be in play there at 30 or another, another receiving pick. weapon like an AJ Brown. Mm-hmm. Um, or I think you're looking at safety. I think at that point, you're probably looking at potentially a, a wide receiver at 30 and a safety at 44 or a safety at 30 and a wide receiver at 44. And I think when you get into that discussion, I think there's better value at receiver at 30 and still really good value at safety at 44 rather than kind of the other way around. I really think A.J. Brown makes a lot of sense to Green Bay at 30. He's going to come in and be able to compete at the, that slot receiver that Randall Cobb vacated really from the word go. He's going to earn Aaron Rodgers' trust pretty quickly. Um, he's a big physical guy. You know, slot receivers come in all different forms. Um, but, he, you know, he's kind of got a, an Andre Johnson slash Sterling Sharp type of build to him. I think he kind of plays the middle of the field like an early Anquan Bolden. Uh, but he's got a little bit more juice after the catch. Um, I think the thing that put him in that first-round conversation was when DK Metcalf went out. He played on the outside as well and really showed that he could hang out there. Uh, not just in the slot. So I think he brings a lot of positional versatility. I think he's going to you know, be, be a guy that's able to take some of that punishment over the middle and, uh, again, really be a, a, a really great slot receiver right away uh, for the Packers. And then you know, if you're looking at safety, uh, Juan Thornhill or Chauncey Gardner-Johnson make a lot of sense here as well. I mean, Juan Thornhill 
pairs so perfectly with Adrian Amos. Um, Thornhill's just an athletic freak show who's going to be able to play over the top, allow Amos to kind of go wherever the heck he wants to go, which is, I think, what you ideally want him to be able to do. And then, uh, you know, if you get, take a Chauncey Gardner-Johnson, he's going to come in and really be able to be your coverage safety where Amos can be kind of more of your hard hitter, intimidator, uh, things of that nature. So I think either of those safeties pair really well. But I do think that potentially safety makes a little bit more sense at 44, and one of those really great pass-receiving options makes sense at 30 a little bit more. I love it. I think that's a, a good move there about Noah Fant. I'm glad you brought him up. I know that TJ Hawkinson really dominates the headlines, but I watched Noah Fant a lot, and I really liked his play. I really liked the way that he was able to separate. Good blocking tight end as well. What's your thoughts on this offseason for the Packers? Well... <laughs> We're going to find out a lot in, in those first four or five games of the season. I mean, it's certainly okay. been exciting, especially from, uh, you know, a, a, a 365-day-a-year podcast, uh, getting a new coach, new offensive coordinator, new coaching staff, uh, having three picks in the top 50 of the draft, four huge free agent signings. Uh, this this offseason will ultimately go down, you know, for the next five, six, maybe eight years as a, a massive, you know, no pun intended here, turning point uh, for this Packers, <laughs> this Packers franchise. Um, you, and there's no question about it. You, you simply can't have this type of draft capital, this type of free agent spending and a brand new coaching staff and not have it affect your franchise for the course of the next potentially decade. And if they hit, if they did it well, uh, you're looking at this again being the turning point and what really got them going in the right direction and hopefully for <laughs> you know one or maybe more Super Bowls before Aaron Rodgers calls it a career. Um, if you don't, you're, you're probably not looking at a, another Aaron Rodgers Super Bowl and you're probably looking at you know figuring out a, a way to um, you know rebuild this franchise and, and Matt Lafleur and Brian Gutekunst and, and Aaron Rodgers will uh, probably all be gone in the next five years and you're going to have to start over from scratch. So I, I mean this in, in no small way, shape or form. This, this off season was a huge, huge off season. And like I said, we'll reshape this franchise and shape this franchise for the foreseeable future. Biggest story of the Packers off season. Uh, I mean, it has to be Matt LaFleur. I mean, getting time you get a new head coach, okay. you know, for, for your franchise, th that has to be the answer. There's only been so many in the in the history of the Packers. Uh, he cements his, his name in, in that list, and how he does is, is really going to go, uh, you know, a long way in determining how the Packers do. Uh, your thoughts on Tyler Dunn's article for Bleacher Report and how Rodgers responded? Yeah, so this is obviously a, a really hot-button topic over the course of the past couple weeks. Sure um, enough, but it was. I think, I think Ty Dunn did a really great job reporting that specific side of the story. Mm -hmm. uh, and I want to kind of word this very carefully. So okay. I, respect, I respect the hell out of Tyler Dunn, mm -hmm. and I, I think he's done a phenomenal job as a journalist – I 100% respect his journalistic integrity, and I don't think that this was really a, a necessarily an easy article to write. If you know anything about um, the response that you get if you kind of criticized Aaron Rodgers on anything, just for example, and I, I mean Tyler Don obviously has a much bigger following than I do. Uh, unquestionably, he's a national media outlet. He's been a beat writer for the Packers. If I say something that Aaron Rodgers had a bad game you know, my mentions will be filled and uh, I'm kind of the bad guy. Um, he knew wholeheartedly going into releasing that article 
the type of, of backlash that he would receive from a variety of different angles. So I don't necessarily think that this is, you know, I don't believe the the take that this is him just trying to get ahead in the, the journalism industry. I mean, he's already ahead. He's already uh, a nationwide journalist. And uh, like I said, I, I respect the hell out of his work. Um, I will say, I think he told uh, a, a very convincing side of the story in which I think um, parts of which are probably true. I think everything that he wrote in there was reported the way that he heard it. I don't, I think it's ridiculous to think that he made things up. Um, were there certain players that had different opinions and, uh, you know, um, that did, that had maybe bones to pick with Rogers. Jennings. Yes. And uh, did he he use some of those? Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, what I would have loved to see from Tyler, and this is no criticism of his work or anything like that. I would have loved to have seen a point counterpoint because I think there, there's been enough, evidence from other players to say, Hey, this wasn't the fact James Jones had a phenomenal interview with Rich Eisen just today in which he told some of that side of the story again, um, not only just defending Rogers, but kind of giving a greater detail and shining some light on some of the things that were in the story, just from a a different angle. So I would have loved a, a point counterpoint because I do believe this is a super complex issue. And I do believe that the truth is, is somewhere in the middle. Ultimately, I do think Aaron Rodgers probably rubs some people the wrong way. I do think that there's probably players that he's maybe got under their skin, whether it was him trying to motivate them or him not having the time of day for somebody that wasn't going to put in the same type of work that he was. Yeah. You know, as any leader in any industry, you are, it's really difficult to reach every single audience, especially if you've got an audience of, you know, in the off season, if you've got a 90, you know, there's 90 players in the off season and then there's coaches and there's training staff and there's scouts and there's a general manager, the whole nine yards. And then next year, like literally half of that has turned over into a whole another group of people. Yeah. My guess is when you're the alpha in that locker room and you're trying to lead a team and you're doing everything in your power. Yeah. You probably pissed off a couple guys along the way. And I think if you interview uh, multiple guys who maybe he rubbed the wrong way and didn't like the way that they were treated, I think you ultimately could, could write that article. And I think, like I said, I think there's a strong level of truth to some of that in that piece. I don't think that that's necessarily any different than any other quarterback if you were to do it the same way. And I think Aaron Rodgers' response was appropriate. And I think if you just listen to Aaron Rodgers' side of the story, I, I think you would probably go the opposite direction and say, uh, I'll, I'll be totally transparent here. I, I'm, like, I read Tyler Dunn's story and I'm like, oh man, there's this is uh, this is really, really bad. I listen to Aaron Rodgers' side of the story, and I'm like, oh, there's nothing here. And again, the, the truth is unequivocally somewhere in between there. Um, Rodgers wasn't perfect. I don't think Dunn's article necessarily gave the whole side of the story. And I, I think us as fans are, are left to kind of glean exactly where that middle point was. And I, I think at the end of the day, the hope is that this is just a, a motivating factor for everyone in this franchise. It should be. It should be a moment to get everyone together on the same page. Hell, that's there's, there's a reason there's a new coach in town. They needed a new vision. They needed a new leadership. They needed new, uh, you know, a new captain to, to write this ship and get it going in the right way. And hopefully that's Matt LaFleur. Hopefully this team is motivated, and uh, hopefully this is just more fuel to the fire. I think that's a great point, Andy, because when I looked at, when I read that article by Tyler Dunn, and I'll just say this right out the gate, I thought it was a very well done article. I thought that I knew that there was something happening with this team 
the way that McCarthy and Aaron Rodgers were kind of responding to each other on the sidelines, every time the camera came down there, Rodgers and McCarthy just never looked like they were together at this point. And, I mean, that's fine. I mean, I, I did an article about a couple of weeks ago, and I talked about how this is locker room turmoil has always been part of the NFL. Joe Montana, Steve Young. Joe Gillum, Terry Bradshaw with the Pittsburgh Steelers. And, of course, Tom Brady and Bill Belichick. And, it, I mean, actually, when that Seth Wickersham article came out, it actually helped the Patriots. They got to a Super Bowl. So, I mean, it might actually be able to help the Packers going forward. But I just felt like this is, this is nothing new. I mean, we're human. We're human beings. We're flawed. There is no such thing as a perfect locker room. There are going to be guys out there that are going to feel a little uh, bitten, you know. And, and that's the thing with Finley. And that's the thing also with uh, Jennings. I mean, Jennings turned down an $8 million a year uh, deal. When Ted Thompson was there, he went to the Vikings and traded in Aaron Rodgers for Christian Ponder. So, I mean, I understand that going down. Jermichael Finley, his career ended because of a neck injury, and he just didn't have the career he wanted. So, I understand that, but, I mean, he's still one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL, and it should be still said that even with this so-called turmoil, it doesn't mean that the Packers are a soap opera. You want a soap opera? Go to the Steelers. That was a soap opera. That's all I felt. <laughs> I, I totally agree with you. All right. Uh, now, final question before you head off, Andy. I want to get a little personal with you, but favorite Packers moment over the past five years? Whew. Uh, that's a really good question. Um, you know, I was in the stadium last year when, when Rodgers came back from halftime against the Bears. Um, that was certainly a, a very memorable moment. Um, in the last five years, that's probably the one that stands out as the, as the most magical, at least that I was at in person. Um, there, there have been three kind of standout moments in my lifetime that I was at games that, that kind of stand out to me. The first, I was like, I don't know, eight or nine years old, maybe even younger than that. And I was <laughs> at the game where Favre made his, his first kind of appearance coming in for uh, for Don Mikowski and the, it was the Kittrick Taylor pass in the back of the end zone and kind of the rest was history. So being at that first game, uh, was magical being at the Seahawks playoff game in the snow, the snowball game, um, where they were down 14, nothing early and came back. Um, that's the second one that stands out. And then the, the game last year, uh, where Rogers comes back, you know, the whole stadium and kind of, I think not just the people in the stadium, but I think people at home too, obviously thought that he had torn his ACL, and, you know, the, the whole season's over in the, the first half of the first game of the year. And uh, for, you know, at that point, I didn't care about the game. I just wanted him to be healthy. I didn't care if they lost that game by 40 points. If he if you would have told me he'd come back the next week, I'd be like, I'm fine. You know, I'd lose by 40. If, if he's healthy, I'll, I'll, I'll take the loss. Um, <laughs> for him to come back, play in that game, uh, make that comeback and, and actually win the game and then be able to finish the season too uh, was really quite in, incredible. And uh, I think over the course of the last five years, that's probably the one that sticks out the most. Andy Herman at Cheesehead TV. If you have not read his stuff, take a look at it. He has great film sessions that he's put out. And Andy, I just want to say this on behalf of the Pack-A-Day. I thank you so much uh, for giving me this opportunity to work with Mark Eckel and really get those reps because, you know, I'm here down at the Dan Patrick School of Sportscasting. I'm doing a lot of work, but uh, 
thank you to giving me that chance because I feel like this will definitely help me going forward. So thank you so much for all the reps that you continue to give me. And uh, thanks so much for coming on. Hey, you bet. Thanks for having me. And thanks for all you do, Jake. You know, um, I, I get uh, a lot of the credit as the, the guy that put everything together and the owner. But I, I, as I told you guys from day one, when I put everything together, um, you know, I, I really had two goals throughout this, this uh, you know, process. One, I just want to be a, a part of the team. I, I don't want anything more than that. I just want to be, you know, one of the people that's helping with this podcast. And the other thing is that ideally this is a, a platform for, for everyone that's a part of it to continue to grow and get better. And hopefully you guys all outgrow the podcast and go on to, to bigger and better things. And we find uh, new people and uh, then they go on to bigger and better things. And it's kind of a, a launching pad for everyone. So uh, th that's my vision. And uh, you've done a great job and it's been great having you on the team. And I appreciate you having me on today. Thank you so much, Andy. And enjoy the NFL draft. We'll see what the Packers can do. Can't wait. Have a good one, man. All right. Thank you. All right. That was Andy Herman of Cheesehead TV. Follow him at, at Sconey Sports on Twitter. Uh, he always has great stuff to say, uh, but I wasn't lying. I mean, you know, just getting those reps uh, is just, it's such a big thing for, so if you're an aspiring journalist or podcaster out there and you're even a Packers fan or just trying to get your name out there, this Pack-A-Day podcast could definitely help you in the future because we're not all going to be here, you know, forever. I mean, that's what that's what Andy just tried to bounce off here. So if you're aspiring and you want to get some reps, that's definitely the way to go here. All right, when we come back here, we're going to continue on with our NFL draft breakdown. We're going to have Rudy Reyes. Uh, he'll be joining us to talk about the Steelers draft. It's going to be interesting now. No Antonio Brown, no Le'Veon Bell. So where do the Steelers go? We'll find out next. Rudy Reyes coming up next on Turning Points. We tell both sides of the story. 